0: Hello and welcome to Canucks Talk. I am your host, Thomas Drance. Jamie Dodd out, ill, indefinitely. We'll get him back off IR, activated off of IR and back on the air in sh- no time at all. But in the meantime, you're stuck with me for two full hours. Two full hours of Canucks Talk with Drance and friends. No, 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 wait. Don't turn your radio off. That's That'll be fun. We'll have a nice time. So what I'm going to need you to do is, listen to me, I'm going to tell you how this show is going to go, and then we're going to do the show, and then at the end, I'm going to tell you how the show has gone. Hat tip to Johnny Carson. First of all, Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota All-Star team. Visit avenuemachinery.ca or douglaslakeequipment.com for more details, and of course, I am coming to you live, sans Jamie Dodd, missing him very much, from the Kintex Studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1500 five-star Google reviews, find your perfect fit at kintech.net. Okay. Here's how the show's going to go. For the first half hour, I might rant at you. I know, shocking. Something you've never heard before, Drance talking for 25 minutes in a row. <laughs> so we'll do that. Preview the game against Calgary Maybe hear from Bruce Boudreaux if we get the audio in. Maybe not. Maybe it'll just be me. But we'll break down what to expect from the Canucks against the Calgary Flames. And because this is how we do it at Canucks Talk, I will then filter all of that into the big picture of why this team needs to rebuild. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We'll we'll talk fairly about the team. Segment two, segment two, I'm going to be joined by Pat Steinberg of Sportsnet 960 in Calgary, Pat Steinberg's an old friend of mine, and we will preview the Flames and the Canucks, you can of course hear his podcast, Flames Talk, on, well, wherever you find your podcasts, but also across the Sportsnet Radio Network, don't know why you need to listen to Flames Talk, though you're listening to Canucks Talk, this is Vancouver. One o'clock, we're going to do a mailbag segment, okay, so here's where I'm going to need your help. Text in to the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber, of course, is the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber at Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver or online at DunbarLumber.com. Text in 650-650. Fill up the mailbag, and then my producer, Lena, is going to help me choose some of the select best questions we receive. We will answer them however you want to guide this conversation. However, Whatever you want to hear me talk about. Text it in, 650-650. That's the Dunbar Lumber text line. Finally, we'll end at 1.30 with my friend and yours, Harmon Dial. Harmon Dial of The Athletic. I'm, of course, also at The Athletic. He will join us on the program at 1.30, and we will break down what we'll expect from the Canucks against the Calgary Flames. And, of course, the big picture about what exactly this team should do. All right, so that's how this show's going to proceed. That's what we're going to do here for the next two hours. Thank you for joining us. Let's get into the weeds. The Vancouver Canucks will play the Calgary Flames today. In Calgary. It's part of a stretch of games that feel like they could determine the Canucks season, but in my opinion, probably won't. Right? You're going to need an extreme result for this stretch of games prior to the Christmas break to, to prove decisive in any way in, you know, altering the Canucks standing in the league or in any way deciding their fate one way or the other. The fact is is that when you're a middling team, you should expect middling results, right? The Canucks are in tough against the Flames team, the team that is deeply underwhelmed this season. But the Flames fundamentally have a way higher floor than the Vancouver Canucks. And here's the problem. Also a way higher ceiling. Like, make no mistake, you can look at the Canucks roster on paper and say you like some of the high-end pieces in Vancouver more. Certainly Vancouver is a much younger group right there's more upside there potentially but the flames have veteran savvy the flames have guys who know how to compete the flames control play 5 on 5 they have the sort of margin for error that this vancouver canucks team doesn't hasn't had in in a decade honestly in a decade it's been a long time since we saw a canucks team reliably control play 5 on 5 the calgary flames do it in their sleep now they've struggled to open the campaign why Really tough goaltending performances. Dan Vladar and Jacob Markstrom have not been in form to open the season, and it's actually astounding the extent to which that's the case. You know, if you look at the five-on-five save percentage numbers, the Calgary Flames are at nine-one-zero, right? Nine-one-zero. That's bottom ten in the league. They're only mildly better than a Vancouver Canucks team that has had Demko out of form and then has been leaning heavily. On Spencer Martin with Colin Delia in one sort of relief appearance to to hold the fort as Demko recovers from his injury. I mean, the Canucks have had Spencer Martin, right? An NHL veteran with 23 career games, play 14 games for them this season. And they're only marginally better than the Calgary Flames are five on five. And that's with perennial Vezina nominee Jacob Markstrom in the the pipes. Is Jacob Markstrom going to struggle all season? I'm going to let you in on a secret. No, no, he's not. He's Jacob Markstrom. He's really good. We know that here. We know that in this city. Is Dan Vladar an unreliable backup? No, Dan Vladar is really good. They're going to be fine. I still think this Flames team is every bit the threat in the Pacific that the Vegas Golden Knights are. Like I think they're the best team, arguably, in the Pacific. I think they're no worse than second. And so I think this is a far tougher opponent than it looks in the standings. Like, you can look at the standings and say, well, oh, man, the Canucks, you know, they're pretty close to the Calgary Flames in terms of overall points. And, and, you know, you're not wrong, right? They're only four points back. So what really matters for the Canucks tonight? If you're a playoff pursuitist, (laughs) if you want to see this team make a run, they can't lose in regulation. You cannot, in my view... This early in the season, be in sixth place in the Pacific and six points back of five. Like, then then we're really talking about who needs to go before the trade deadline. Like, really, this team can't afford to lose in regulation tonight against the Flames. That's the position this Canucks team has put themselves in. Here's the problem. Once again, when it comes to how these teams play... You know, as, as many goals as the Flames have surrendered, and they've surrendered a fair few. Like, this has not been a lockdown defensive team in terms of the actual results, right? They've allowed 54 5-on-5 goals. They're only plus one by 5-on-5 goal differential. So, the, I mean, that's a far cry from the Canucks, who have allowed 15 more goals, 5-on-5 overall. <laughs> but we see how the Canucks play defense. Like, the Calgary Flames aren't just 15 goals better than, how the, Canucks, than the Canucks defensively. They are way better. Like, way better. Seven goals might not sound like a lot, but we're talking about an extra 150 shots (laughs) the Canucks have permitted five-on-five, okay, Over, over the course of the season. Games being unequal, but nonetheless, an extra 100 scoring chances, right? The Calgary Flames control play exceptionally well. The Vancouver Canucks do not. That makes them a really dangerous opponent, particularly because Calgary's weakness this season in net is actually matched and in fact exceeded by Vancouver's own struggles in that struggles which I just don't think you can reasonably expect to go away. Like, can you expect over the next eight weeks the Canucks to be significantly better than the fifth worst in the NHL by, save percentage, which is where they stand now, right? Well, I mean, actually, overall, they stand 31st out of 32, but 5-on-5, 26th out of 32. Can you expect them to be fundamentally better than that over the next eight weeks with a Colin-Delia-Spencer-Martin tandem? I mean, I don't think so. I don't think so. Do you expect Calgary to be better than they've been with a Markstrom-Vladar tandem? Yeah, you do. If this clicks for Calgary, when it does, and it's not an if, when Calgary's goaltending stabilizes, this team's going to rack up wins and they're going to look like the best defensive team in hockey doing it, period. That's my expectation for the Flames. For the Canucks, I just don't know that I'm expecting their goaltending to click at this point. We might see a run of a week or two where Martin's really good, but as we've seen dating back to Markstrom's tenure, this team really only gets hot when either they're shooting 20% or when their goaltender is patching over, you know, a, a blue line that's that bleeds chances and has bled chances against for years, years, right? It's un- unreasonable to ask Martin to do that. Demko can that's why he's one of the eight or s- seven or eight best puck-stopping human beings on the planet, no matter what he looked like in the first two months of the season. That's the thing. Calgary's going to control play tonight. Vancouver has enough finishing talent to maybe delay Markstrom's get right. <laughs> Markstrom will start tonight, by the way. He's 8-2 and two against the Canucks since moving on to Calgary for that mega contract. He played well against Montreal. He hasn't been in form this season. He's not going to face the same level of dangerous chances, in my view, that Spencer Martin probably will from a Flames team that honestly plays pretty classic Daryl Sutter hockey. Like, I don't know that the Flames have a threat like the Lindholm-Gaudreau-Kachuk line that they enjoyed last year. I mean, they lost like 90 goals out of their lineup. It shows this team plays in straight lines right like there's a reason you heard them linked to a guy like Brock Besser right like they are hungry to add some creativity some flair some offense into their lineup you'll probably notice that it might look a little bit like when you see the Canucks play the Kings right and you can tell that the Kings connect play a little better than not a little better a lot better than the Canucks do but they don't have the east west threat that same level of offensive ingenuity that Vancouver does when their best players are their best players now Breaking down some things that we saw, this is per Post Media's Ben Kuzma, who is in Calgary traveling. The Canucks have Curtis Lazar. He of one goal, one assist, and according to Cam Chiron's scoring chance data, uh, he's yet to, to set up a single scoring chance this season at 5-on-5. Five five. They've got Curtis Lazar playing on the top line, Niels Hoaglander out of the lineup. Against a team that relies on playing a North-South game, relies on winning puck battles, I think that's pretty dangerous. Like, what does Niels Hoaglander bring to the miller Horvat line? A better sense of control, helps them control play, helps them win puck battles, and speed. Taking him out of the lineup is playing into Calgary's hands. I think this is a bad bet for the Canucks. Now, of course, that means that Curtis Lazar is going to have a hat trick. That's how hockey works. But seriously, I think you're playing with fire. Um, I think Boudreaux is playing with fire here. I know that Hoaglander had a bad moment on the goal that the Minnesota Wild scored, but man, this guy is essential at this point. Essential at this point to making the Miller Horvat line go at its top gear. And if that line's not going at its top gear, this team's doesn't. This team's a one line team. They're a one line team at five on five without Miller Horvat controlling play. Miller and Horvat have controlled play best with Niels Hoglander on their wing. Further down, we're going to see Pedersen Kuzmenko and Mikheyev together again. Interesting. That line's obviously been really effective. They've scored 14 goals in like 150 minutes. I like that. That's like a goal and a half a game. When you think about what a top line plays, right? They play 15 minutes a game. It's a goal and a half based on what they've done. Scoring five goals an hour. Five plus goals an hour. That line, we haven't seen it in a bit because Besser went and replaced Kuzmenko on that line. I'm sure there's some excitement about getting that line back together. Certainly when the Canucks swept that road trip, they looked exceptional. They were the reason the Canucks won those three games. In truth, though, the Besser line, the Besser version of that line was just as good. (laughs) Like, that that line was only together for 45 minutes. They scored four goals. Offensively, they actually generated the same amount. Defensively, they actually gave up less. So, you know, I don't know that this is like a big upgrade, right? It, it, It sounds fun. I'm looking forward to seeing it again. It looked great. I think Kuzmenko's a really good fit with Elias Pettersson, but I don't know that this is a huge... I don't think going from Besser to Kuzmenko, frankly, is is nearly the bump in quality for that line, as I suspect the excitement level of fans would welcome... Like, fans are so much higher on Kuzmenko and so much lower on Brock Besser at the moment, but the difference isn't as significant as it feels. Dries with Besser and Garland, they have played 37 minutes together at 5-on-5. They have yet to score a goal. Not a single goal. Yesterday, me me and Jamie described it as the uh, what would you say you do here line. And that's how I feel about it. Like, all of those players are sort of due. I think Dries has actually had some really good moments in terms of keying the transition game. I think he's like a quality depth piece for this team. But I don't know what that line's identity is. Are they supposed to score? Are they supposed to control play? Are they supposed to be a checking line? Or is it just like a spare parts line that you can't quite figure out? Is it just a line that sort of illustrates how one-dimensional some of the wingers on this team are, and how shallow the depth at center is when Miller plays on the wing? To me, it, to me, it's you know, I don't know. I like, I, I, I bet, I there's a chance they'll even play fourth line minutes. Like, there's nothing doing there. Now again, because it's hockey, that means they're gonna have a breakout night. But I anyway, I don't have a ton of time for this experiment. Look forward to them proving me wrong this evening. Finally, we get Oman, Joshua, Studnika. we know their we know their drill. I just want to see them take it to the net a little more. You know, we saw it that one game in San Jose, um, where they really were like looking to take it to the net. I like how that line works, but I worry that they play like a heavy perimeter game. There's just a lot of chasing the puck around the wall, a lot of holding it in zone, not not enough like direct play. I, I, I want to see more direct play. Hughes and Bear. The Hughes-Bear pair. Hey, we'll see. We'll see. It's going to be the fastest pair that this Canucks team has iced since Prime Edler-Christian Erhoff? I mean, I don't know. I can't even think of the last time this team had two guys who can move the puck like that together. How's that for an indictment in the contemporary NHL? It's been 10 years. 10 years since the Canucks had a pair... Where you were like, hey, both those guys can move the puck. <laughs> oh, that's painful. It's painful to say. It felt bad in my mouth. I hope it I hope it hurt your ears. Ah, realistically, I'm talking, it always hurts your ears. So, with the idea of a Hughes-Bear pair, which I'm very excited about for the rhyming potential, for the Huggy-Bear pair, I mean, there's a ton that you can do with those two players playing together, um, you know, you're also creating an issue sort of elsewhere elsewhere on the lineup. Like, this is the problem when you lack depth, is you make an interesting play, you do something interesting to change things up. Oh, excuse me. They're playing OEL and Bear. They played Hughes and Bear at practice. My bad, I'm lying to you. It's OEL and Bear. We're not seeing the Hughes-Bear pair tonight, at least not based on morning skate. Hughes will play with Shen. Excuse me, let's scrap that. Errors and omissions, we'll end it. I'll apologize again at the end. And then Burroughs and Myers. So Burroughs playing on the left side, drawing in for Riley Stillman. Uh, You know know the editorial stance of this program. Kyle Burroughs is probably a top four defenseman on this team based on merit anyway, in my view. So that's how we're going to look at this Calgary Flames game. Calgary Flames will be without a ton of players. Like there are a ton of players missing from this Calgary Flames lineup, including ex-Canuck Chris Tanev, who we all know saw, um, well, he got hit in the head by a puck. People said he blocked a shot, but he didn't. He got hit in the head by a puck. Really scary scene, luckily. Uh, Seems to be day-to-day. No worse for wear. Uh, Looks like Lindholm is back, however. Looks like Weger is back. There was a real chance that the Canucks would face a Calgary Flames side with no Lindholm, no Uyghur, no Tanev. Uh, looks like only Tanev uh, will be out of the lineup. Everyone else sort of is in. Um, and that means the Calgary Flames still look good. Like, still look good. You've got Toffoli. You've got Huberto. You've got Lindholm, who scored 40-plus last year. Uh, you've got Dylan Dubé, who's fast, can do a lot to stress out Vancouver's defensive speed. Kadri, we know the threat that he adds. Uh, not just offensively, but in terms of being irascible. Annoying. Mangiapani, same thing. Kadri, Mangiapane, Dube. That line to me is the one, like, here's what I don't want to see. Here's what I don't want to see from the Canucks tonight. I don't want to be watching that line play and thinking to myself, where are the three Canucks players who compete that hard? Like, that's what I don't want to see. say to myself while watching this game on television tonight. I don't want to see the Canucks get dramatically out-competed by this Calgary Flames team. And yet, when you think about what guys like Coleman, Dube, Mangiapane, like when you think about how these guys play, when you think about how reliable they are defensively, how aware they are, uh, the way they control play, like how do the Flames control play? They win 50 50 puck battles. They outwork you. They outwork you. That makes them a really dangerous opponent for a team that how often have we seen them get outworked? Like, that's what I don't want to see tonight. I don't want to be watching Dube skate around buzzing. Around, you know, using that speed. I want to see Mangiapane stick-checking everybody on the back check. You know, just absolutely taking away all space and time from anyone on any rush. And Kadri getting under everybody's skin and just ably controlling play, you know, between the hash marks. Never really skating outside the center of the rink. I don't want to see those guys being disciplined and workmanlike and having those lunch pails. And it just standing out amidst sort of a morass, like a sea of, you know, unfocused blah that can, that can, doesn't always, but that can be typical of how this inconsistent Canucks team plays. Like, that's what I don't want to see tonight. Do not get outworked by a Flames team that lives to outwork you. Because if you do, you're going to get like 20 shots. You'll get like 12 shots. And, and let's be real. This team is Canucks' team. When they win, they outscore their problems. Okay. But in their last few games against competent teams, they've been shut out. They scored once on Florida, they scored once on Washington. Like, you're not an elite offensive team if you're just doing it against Montreal and San Jose. You're not. I'm sorry. This Canucks team has an elite power play, but they don't generate enough five on five. They don't. They don't generate enough threat. They get goals because they've got guys like Pedersen who are unbelievable finishers. They've got guys like Kuzmenko, who, if you give him space and time, is going to put a wrist shot in the back of the net. They've got guys like Bo Horvat who know exactly how to score from like three feet out. (laughs) Like Bo Horvat. When was the last time you saw Bo Horvat score from an area of the ice that you'd call clean? (laughs) The guy lives in the muck and produces there. But you need to give those guys chances. You need to give them the volume they require to do damage. Flames goaltending, Markstrom had a good game the other night hasn't been a strength of the team. we've We saw the Canucks chase the flames out of Rogers arena late last season. and that was a far more um sophisticated like robust version of the calgary flames than the than the one we've seen be sort of feckless this season. If you get outworked, you're not going to generate enough opportunities for the likes of Horbat and Pedersen to make the difference that this team's going to need, to score enough at 5-on-5, five five, to, to not be so dependent on the Zebras, you know, to call a fortunate soft call late that allows the Canucks to tie it the way they required against Montreal and San Jose. This team wants their fate in their own hands. They can't get outworked, and they need to generate more at 5-on-5. Five five. That's a tall order. That's a tall order against a Flames team that, and I I hate to say this, like, I don't want to say this. I get no joy out of it. Structurally and materially better than what the Canucks have to offer at the moment. We'll talk about that with Pat Steinberg on the other side. You're listening to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk. I'm Thomas Drance, Jamie Dodd on Retroactive IR. I'll put him on LTI for the third segment. Welcome back to the Kintech studio. Kintech, of course, is Vancouver's favorite or Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. All right. A reminder to get your questions in to the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber, of course, is the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber at Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver or online at Dumbarlumber.com. All right, we're going to bring in our friend Pat Steinberg onto the show. Steinberg is my former colleague with The Nation Network, and we've had hijinks together, most notably in Buffalo, where I booked a place for us to stay at the draft, and it turned out to be... um. Well, not befitting of Steinberg's station in our industry, uh, but he's forgiven me, and he's kindly agreed to join us today. Pat, how are you?
1: I'm good, brother. I'm just finally getting over that, and, <laughs> and I know that I've, I know that I've turned you down for years. I'm finally, ready to let bygones be bygones. How
0: are we doing, brother? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm sorry about the tetanus. Hey, Pat, <laughs> Pat what's wrong with the flames? I keep telling my audience I think it's mostly a net. I still think this is a good team uh, that plays well five-on-five. I know Huberto hasn't lived up to expectations. What's wrong
1: with the Calgary Flames, and how much of it is the play of their goalies? Well, I think when you look at the body of work of 29 games, I think goaltending has has definitely been a part of it. Um, I think that the specifically the struggles that that Jacob Markstrom has had uh, after an incredible year last year, Things went off the rails, as, as we all saw in the second round against Edmonton, and, and only recently does it look like he's maybe starting to get things back on track. And, and for his first quarter of the season, there were way more soft goals, way more goals that were just not used to him allowing, and the save percentage was, quite frankly, just nowhere near good enough you you can't be talking about a six million dollar goaltender flirting with 890 as as opposed to 915 and that's that's what he was doing now over the last three or four starts things have been getting better and i do think that he's on on the rebound and and luckily they got some solid goaltending pending from their backup, Dan Vladar, or their 1B or however you want to look at it. He, he gave them some really quality starts in there and, and allowed them to keep their head above water. But here's the other thing going on. And, and you're right, they are a team that plays well at 5-on-5, five five because under Daryl Sutter, most teams play well 5-on-5, five five and their shot metrics, their, um, th- those those metrics remain strong. Their shot volume, their uh, attempts for, and attempts against, very, very strong. And and that proxy shows that they're spending way more time on the attack, and way more time in the opponent zone than they are defending. But here's, here's the problem that we're seeing so far this year, and my worry is that it could be following a familiar pattern to what we saw in Daryl's last stop in his last couple of years as as the head coach of the LA Kings. And my worry is that they are spending a ton of time on the attack, and they are funneling a ton of shots towards the net and a lot of pucks towards the net. I think only four teams uh, do it at a higher rate than the Flames do at five on five. And the problem is. When you take a look at where those attempts are coming from, Granster, they're, they're coming from the perimeter way too often. I believe they are. Uh, in fact, last check, now it might have been, they might have fluctuated one way or the other after last night's results. But when I checked yesterday morning, they were 23rd in high danger chances per 60 at both five on five and at all strengths. And And so this inability that they have had to get pucks to the more quality areas and the higher danger areas where you score at a higher rate from has, has really struggled last year. They were number two in shot volume four and they were number 11 in those high danger chances. So there was a much better correlation, but five to 23, you gotta, you gotta trim that gap and and you you have to find a way to get some of those attempts and opportunities from better areas. And the, the problem is, is that we're 29 games in and they don't really have that game-breaking one player or like they did last year they don't have that game-breaking one line that can kind of do they don't have a an Elias Pedersen who can just get pucks to those areas based on on skill and they don't have Bo Horvat who is Doing what he's doing. They don't have Connor McDavid and Leon Drysaddle. And last year they had a line with Lindholm, Kachuk, and Gaudreau that was so dominant during the regular season that they were able to manufacture those things and the team was able to ride it. So I think you mix those two things the goaltending struggles they had specifically from Jacob in the first quarter and the fact they're having a lot of trouble generating high quality chances. It's kind of why they're a team that's a fringe playoff group right now.
0: Do you think, like, is there a chemistry issue to this point for Jonathan Huberto? It feels like he hasn't been able to find a fit with anybody. You know, in my mind's eye, I thought this is a perfect guy to be feeding Elias Lindholm, right? And, and I mean, mean, you mentioned Bo Horvat. They don't have a guy like Bo Horvat. I I can tell you one guy who Bo Horvat thought about a lot this summer. Like, and this is factual. Bo Horvat spent a lot of time this summer thinking about Elias Lindholm and saying, hey, that guy plays in the same area as the ice as I do and he scored 40 i got to be able to up my game i got to be able to match that what what what's happened there why haven't they found a spark
1: well i think there's a couple of things i i think that i think that jonathan is he's he's getting he's getting better and and it seems like he is on the right track for the first time he's had a stretch where there's been points on a regular basis over an extended period of time. He's got nine points in his last nine games, and he really hasn't had a stretch where he's been kind of point per game productive like that uh, during his time with the Flames. So that that is promising. But what what I think we're seeing right now is I, I I think that the adjustment to this trade, and it's not just the hockey stuff. I think it's everything that goes into it. I think the adjustment has been way more than Jonathan would have even anticipated when he got dealt and when he signed that contract a few a few weeks later. I, I think I think the um, still the the hurt that went along with basically being told by Florida that yeah, thanks, but no thanks. You know, we're not really interested in re-signing you and and we'll go this direction instead. Um, And then the hockey side of things. And I think what what has been the most difficult for him to adjust to is kind of the play away from the puck and all of what goes into what Daryl Sutter demands from all of his players away from the puck and and how – much, how relentlessly he harps on those details. And and it just has seemed for the first 28 games or 26 games or whatever that Jonathan's played, that there's been a lot of computing going on on the ice and it's made some of the things a little bit less natural. But I think we're starting to see that change a little bit. And I think that we're starting to see him offensively just becoming a little bit more uh, automatic. And I think there's also an adjustment with some of the guys around him because there have been times when multiple times when he's put a perfect pass that most guys don't make and he's put it into a great spot for a Lindholm or a Toffoli. and I'm with you I thought Lindholm Toffoli, and Huberdeau on paper was the perfect fit because those are Calgary's two best natural finishers and now you've got one of the league's elite distributors and I just it seemed like a good fit and it's why I think Continue to try to force it for a little bit longer because I still think there's something there. But those guys, I think, have also had a little bit of an adjustment and a, and some difficulty adjusting to a guy who passes it like Huberdo does. So I think I think there has been a chemistry issue. I think there's been an adjustment issue and some learning curve and just some overall getting over all of what went down in the summer for Jonathan. And it might take a little while longer. Like. And, and I know that nobody wants to hear this because the Flames are built like a team that's in a window to win right now. But it might take the better part of a full season for him to fully get comfortable here. And, you know, it's too bad because that's the final year of a deal that pays him 5.9 before he jumps up to ten and a half. right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: any buyer's remorse there, you think?
1: I don't think so yet. Um, and I honestly, they didn't really have a choice unless, unless they were going to be given the okay. And, and from what I understand, you know, they had, I think they had about four deals on the table for Matthew Kachuk when that was all going down and, and, um, Florida's deal was the only one that kept them or gave them the opportunity to keep them competitive now at, on paper, the same level that they were the year before. And for a team that had done so many good things in the regular season and had finally won a playoff round and not a playoff round like they won in 2015, where they got the best possible matchup against the Canucks team that probably shouldn't have been a playoff team either. And they were able to win that that series like that. That counts, but it doesn't count. This was like the first time that they won a playoff series mm-hmm. as a good team. And and so you're trying to build on that. And the, the Florida trade was the only one that kept them you know, at that same level, at least in theory. And then you go out and sign Kadri, right? So I guess, I, guess I, I think they were kind of in a spot where you make that deal and you say goodbye to Matthew, which they had no choice in, but you make that deal – you better sign the guys to a long term to long term deals or else you're putting yourself in another tough spot. So I don't I don't think we're talking about buyer's remorse at this point yet. Uh and I, I think that objectively and looking at it from a bigger picture, which I think is difficult to do sometimes in a day by day league in, in hockey markets like we live in. Um but I think I think you have to wait until you're even into season two before you can really start to judge exactly what you've got in a guy like Jonathan.
0: Well, well, don't you have to wait and judge based on whether or not they go deep, whether or not they make it count over the next three years? I mean, isn't that sort of the key? Like we all know the downside of that contract is, is fraught, right? Yep. Is, isn't the point that you you better do something notable in the next year or two? A hundred percent.
1: And, and that is, that is exactly what this is all about. And one of the things that a lot of people have said, and and frankly something that I I have said and and even agree with, and and still believe at this point is that the way they're built, if they've got if they've got Lindholm playing at the level he's capable of, and Kadri is in playoff form, and you've got Michael Backlund who's always reliable, and and if Huberto rounds into form, and Mangiapane's game gets back, and Toffoli is what he's been for the most part this year. And that is just a consistent, reliable producer. I think there's a chance that they've got a better group to go up against and, and specifically to go up against Edmonton in a playoff round. Like they got their doors blown off by the Oilers and they did not have an answer to their ability to have game breakers take over a period or take over 60 minutes. And mm-hmm. And so with the guys they have now, and looking even at what Kadri did when he was matched up against McDavid or Drysaddle in the Western Conference final, like it, it feels like they've got a deeper group to be able to combat what the Oilers do with their high end. But the problem is they've got to get there, and right now – They're flirting with 500 and flirting with a wild card spot. And so you got to get there. And at some point, if you don't start stringing regular season wins together, you're going to dig yourself a hole. You're going to be playing chase and catch up all year. And you might be finding yourself out of it when it's all said and done. And then you never get the chance to string wins together in the playoffs. So yeah, yeah, I I agree with you. It truly is. Evaluation truly is about, whether in the next, however long this window is, two years, three years, four years, whatever it is, can they get a long run in there and, and sniff a Stanley Cup final? And, and if the answer is no, then I think we're going to look back at, at this past season and say, no, they didn't get the results that they were looking for.
0: Pat, what's the view from Alberta about the Vancouver Canucks? What are people talking about at the rink? How is this team being viewed?
1: From the other side of the Rocky Mountains, um, it's funny because I think the the main thing that people are saying is, "Holy cow, what a mess the Vancouver Canucks are right now!" And Bo Horvat and JT Miller and Bruce Boudreau and what an absolute unmitigated disaster. Oh, wait a second, look at the standings, and there they are. Right, like we're not talking about a gap that is uh, that, that is sizable between the Flames and the Canucks. So as much as the year has been, from afar, there's been all kinds of dysfunction that you guys have been living on a daily basis uh, uh, in, in in your market. Like we see it, I love Canucks Twitter. It keeps me it keeps me young, it keeps me engaged, <laughs> it keeps me entertained. Um, but but honestly, like it's it's not like the Flames have had. They they may not have the the the, the dysfunction and. You know, uh, a president of hockey operations who doesn't seem to want the current head coach and a head coach who knows it and a a guy that probably shouldn't be traded who might get traded who just happens to be your captain there's not those things going on in Calbee but they're not playing great consistent hockey they're not winning on a regular basis and they find themselves in a similar situation albeit slightly rosier but not significantly they're very similar to where Vancouver is and just kinda of being a middle of the pack team. Definitely not good enough right now to be considered one of the league's elite and, and also not bad enough to be talking about, you know, going in a different direction. So that's kinda of, I think that's that's been the biggest thing that people have said about Vancouver. It's like, okay, yeah, it's been a mess there, but they're not that far back on the flames, which I think is even for me, uh, over the last week or two has taken me a little bit by surprise. Like Vancouver is not that far back and they are not irrelevant when it comes to Calgary's playoff hopes and what they're trying to do in the Pacific.
0: Do you think Vancouver is a threat to the flames?
1: Um, I mean, yes. In that, I think, I think a team that all of a sudden Vancouver gets hot and all of a sudden, their their goaltending puts together a run of 20 games. And, and with their high-end talent, with what EP's doing and what Horvat's doing, and if, if Besser's game all of a sudden takes on a, a slightly different level... Now they can start winning some games. And, and you know, I don't think it's out of the question. that, And I know that it may not be the best thing for the long term of the Vancouver Canucks for them to sneak into a playoff spot and go out in the first round or to finish three points back. I know that there's a ton of conversation. Oh, that's about- inevitable. Don't even worry about that, Pat. That's baked
0: in. <laughs> exactly, the, the race right? for ninth
1: is on in Vancouver. Make no mistake. But because they're in the race for ninth, and so are the Flames right now. Hopefully the Flames can <laughs> up that a little bit. Yeah, I do think they're a threat because if, they're, if Vancouver's the team that puts a bunch of wins together before the Flames do, well, then Calgary's playing chase on a team. The, the, the more teams that you're catching up on, the the less opportunity that you've got to leapfrog your, your, your way into the place you want to be. And the Flames have very firmly said they want to be a top three Pacific team they have no interest in being a wild card team. Like, their goal is to be a playoff team and to be a playoff team in the Pacific. Well, if you're talking about LA and Seattle and Vegas and Edmonton, oh, and now Vancouver being ahead of you for that, well, it just becomes that much that much more difficult for you to accomplish your goal. So, yeah, in that respect, they are a threat because they haven't played themselves completely out of this thing, and they are a decent run of eight or nine games away from putting a little distance between the flames if Calgary doesn't also put together a run of eight or nine really strong games, which they have not been able to do since the first five or six games of the season.
0: I disagree with you, Pat. I think this team's a decent – run of eight or nine games away from being a decent run of eight or nine games away. Hey, <laughs> let me, uh, I like to do this at the end of, uh, at the end of calls. I like to ask people for their tiers. Tier, give me your tiers in the Western in, or in the Pacific in particular. How do you see it shaking out best team on top, worst teams on the bottom? How do you, how do you group okay.
1: them? I have right now, I've got Vegas in a tier of their own. Okay. Uh, I just think the way they're playing and the way Bruce Cassidy has got them to, be back to more than the sum of their parts and the mm. way Jack Eichel has played. And, you know, Jack Eichel looks like the guy they went out and got. Like, he looks like the guy they wanted that they didn't necessarily see a ton of last year because obvious reasons. So I put, I put Vegas in a tier of their own. And then I, I would put... I would kind of put Edmonton in that next tier just because I do think they're going to figure it out. So I've kind of got two, as it stands right now, the way that I've seen it this year, I've got two tiers with one team each. I've got Vegas in the top tier. I've got Edmonton in the next tier. Then you've got the Muck tier with Vancouver, with Calgary, with Los Angeles, and with Seattle. And I know Seattle has done some really good things this year. But they've come back down to earth a little bit. They got the doors blown off a little bit last night, and then you've got the then you've got the, the bad teams. Then you've got the Los Angeles and the Anaheim. Uh, sorry, not the Los Angeles. You have yeah, the San Anaheim and the San Jose. Yeah, but they they they. Yeah, it's ugly. Be, they're the ugly group. You've got the muck group, and then you've got and so you've two got a, you've got, got a big years. muck group. You've got a big muck group. I do, and I think the challenge now for a team like Calgary, for instance, is you've got to work yourself into Edmonton's tier and and be a team that's just slightly better than the rest of that mess in the middle.' that's what, that's what the, the challenge is for the Canucks, and I know that you don't have a ton of confidence that they will do that, and I don't blame ya. you.: won't Pat, You won't either after tonight, <laughs> Pat e- you won't either after you see them live I will uh, I'll text you my impression yeah please after do team. But that's a challenge for one of those teams is to Seattle, LA, Calgary or or Vancouver to elevate themselves from that mushy middle.
0: <laughs> even even our listeners <sighs> Texts in Minor Matt from Abbotsford. That's a terrible tier take. And someone else, Kyle from East Van, says Vancouver's not in that high a tier. No way. <laughs> <laughs> too positive for Vancouver Sports Talk Radio. Pat, I always knew you had it in
1: you. <laughs> oh, I
0: will. I'll never. I'll never make it in that market. I'll <laughs> never do it. I'm too positive. <laughs> oh, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me. Enjoy the game tonight. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on the Pacific and on the Calgary Flames. Should be a fun one tonight at the Scotia Bank. Thanks,
1: Trent. I'll be more negative more next time.
0: <laughs> Much appreciated. That's Pat Steinberg. Hey, everyone, before we go to break, a reminder, next segment, we're doing a mailbag. So text in 650-650. That's the Dunbar Lumber text line. Get your questions in for producer Lena to sift through. She will, sight unseen, throw me the best ones, and we will respond to them. I also want to tell you before we go to break, that Sportsnet 650 has teamed up with the GVFB for Food Bank Friday. This virtual fundraiser for the Greater Vancouver Food Bank runs from, um, is December 16th, excuse me. It runs December 16th from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. and raises important funds for accessible, healthy, and sustainable food for individuals and families. Donate today by text to 33033. Once again, that's 33, three, sorry, that's three. Text 30333. 30333. 30333. All right. A carrot emoji donates $5. A banana donates $10. A heart donates $25. Standard text fees apply. Donations close Friday at 6 p.m. 30333. Math. Do you know that I'm good at math? Dom, anyone ever tell you that? Doesn't show it. (laughs) More numbers talk. Segment three, you're listening to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk with Thomas Strance, Jamie Dodd on LTIR. Actually, he's off-season non roster Indefinitely, we'll be back at some point soon, and we'll be welcomed back. The team is struggling in his absence. I'm coming to you live, of course, from the Kintech studio. And just to remind you, before I ask producer Lena to dig into the mailbag, the Connects Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota All-Star team, visit avenue machinery.ca, DouglaslakeEquipment.com for more details. Lena, do we have good responses? In the inbox.
2: We've got a few just uh, asking about whether the Canucks cap situation w- will be uh, better with Jamie currently on LTIR.
0: Right. Uh, um, doesn't affect the Canucks cap situation. And luckily, luckily, uh, Canucks talk itself is not beholden to the flat cap, uh, as I like to remind uh, Roger's suits when negotiating with them. <laughs> so we're good. Go. We're good. We're fine. Yeah. Thanks for your concern, everybody, but uh, but we are not uh, benefiting in any way from Jamie's absence. It's all sorrow without him.
2: All right. Well, first things first. It's pretty bow heavy, Drance. Bow heavy. Um, well, that makes sense. Bow heavy. Something all happened. Right. Well, Me in the news. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, right. Okay, so let first things first. Uh, if Colorado was a destination for Bo, would Byram be a possibility? They will have cap trouble sooner rather than later, and I can't see Byram not wanting wanting close to McCarr money. That's a lot of money in three players with McCarr, McKinnon, and possibly Bowen.
0: Well, I don't know how you get Bowen Byram to McCarr money. I mean, Kel McCarr is the like highest paid second contract defenseman in league history. Um, you know he. he had scored at an outrageous pace, like a historic pace over the course of his first few NHL seasons leading into when his extension was signed. I mean, consider this, consider this just as a, as a quick way of rebutting it. McCarr's first rookie season, he played 57 games, had 12 goals and 50 points. Byram's career to this point, he's played 59 games, has seven goals and 24 points. So, the idea of Byram getting into Makar range is, um, you know, no, no chance. There's no, there's no way. He's not even getting into Quinn Hughes, Miro, Haskin in range. Uh, this is a far more complicated second contract, but also a far more affordable one from a, a Colorado Avalanche standpoint. Now, because Byram's durability issues have been so decisive, and because Byram's production has been good, but frankly, like, frankly, let's be real. Right? We're talking about a player whose career-high games played is 30 and whose career-high point totals are 17. You know, I mean, I mean, we all know what he can do. We saw it in Vancouver when he played for the Giants. We saw it in the playoffs. Byram's a fantastic young player. But he doesn't have the resume, the production, the durability, the the staying power, the the sample size to demand a massive second contract so here's where this gets interesting Colorado's a smart team I think we all agree on this right Colorado's a, a very bright organization uh league stand like a standard bearer in terms of quality operations in, in hockey uh across the league they will most likely see byram's injuries and lack of production right the fact that he doesn't have a huge case to make to be this massively compensated second contract guy and they will think one of two things they'll either buy that they can get more games out of him on his second deal than they got out of his entry-level deal or or they will think hey you know this guy might never be healthy enough like he helped us win a cup but he might never be healthy enough one of two decisions are gonna happen if they conclude the first one. They're going to try and get a sweetheart deal, right? They're going to try and buy term. They're going to try and buy security out of an asset that they thinks distressed, but who can provide more value to them than the that like surplus value over the contract that they sign him to. If they make the other decision and start dangling him in trade talks, I'm not saying it's not a worthwhile roll of the dice to to make if you're the Vancouver Canucks but you got to do it with an abundance of caution, right? W- w- teams know their players better than they know anything else. And they know your, their players better than you know their players, it, uh, generally. Alarm bells should go off whenever a team indicates a willingness to trade a really good, like, high-pedigree young defenseman, right? I, 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 would, I would proceed with extreme caution if at any point Byram is put on the table by the Avalanche. That, that That's just my view of it, just based on how his career has unfolded to this point. You know, to me, if they're not trying to use the circumstances to lock him up long-term, then there's probably something they're legitimately spooked about. And and based on their intelligence as an organization, how, how successful they've been at the craps table placing bets, I'd be very leery of betting against them on a player like Byram.
2: All right, let's keep the avalanche thing going. Um, An avalanche of mailbag questions. Yeah, here we go. In the event of... Uh, very on brand with uh, Avalanche. In the event of a Horvat deal, what are the chances of the Canucks being able to land a young player such as Alex Newhook or a young talent of that level? Newhook seems like he'd be a good long-term fit here. Is someone? Is he someone the Avs would consider moving? Is this the type of return the Canucks are even looking for? And finally, if it were possible, would other pieces have to be included on either side? So a center for a center?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, the Canucks would love to get a young center back for Bo Horvat. Newhook would seem to fit the bill. The the thing with Newhook is he's been okay this year. It's not like he's played badly, right? I, I mean, we have to be clear about that. It's not like he's been ineffective for the Colorado Avalanche. It's just that he's not ready to replace Nazem Kadri. And you know what? No shame in that. Nazem Kadri's really, really good. Newhook's got a lot of raw tools. He's still just 21. I mean, we're talking about a player who is, you know, effectively... Uh, Hoaglander and Pod Colson's age. He's sixth in minutes played among all Avalanche players. His underlying numbers are a little bit soft. Um, You know he's been outscored at five on five but but narrowly and he's been pretty unfortunate in, in in that like his his on a shooting percentage in particular is low. So, so there could be more offensive upside there even right now, like short-term offensive upside uh, than you think. And then, and then of course there's the fact that he's still a pre-prime player, which means that you're going to get more out of him over the next four years than what he's accomplished to this point. But the Avs for the Avs, right? Like this is still an all in year. I know things have gone badly for them. I know they're banged up, but you know, at, at some point, like you're an elite team, you're, best players are getting older. Your contract situation is getting dicier and dicier as you go. Uh, they've made a host of commitments to a variety of their, their players that, you know, not, not that they're going to age badly, but I mean, Rantanen's 26, McKinnon's 27, Nichushkin's 27, Lekkinen's 27, McCars um, 24, like Gerard's 24, Taves is 28, and you've only got two years left on that sweetheart deal. Um, You know, Guys like Comfer are up after this season, which is going to make things dicey. Um, now, like now, now's their time. Now, the next couple of years. Now, not to say that they are able to afford sort of making a pure win-now move. Like, it's not like their window closes because these guys become 28-29, right? I mean, this is a team that should be a contender for another few years with how they've set this up. I think they've got a relatively lengthy Stanley Cup window. Um, new hook could be a key part of that, but you also have to be mindful of, you know, taking your shot when it's there, right? Like this is the one thing I often talk about. People talk a lot, for example, about like the Mike Gillis draft record and it's not good. No question. But what's the worst part about Mike Gillis's draft record? It's not Jordan Schrader. It's not Cody. Like, it's not whatever name you want to bring up. Brendan Gontz, Nick Jensen. I don't care. Whatever name. It's that they're the club made four or five first round picks in the first place during the, the brightest cup window of this franchise's history. You contrast that with what Rutherford did in Pittsburgh. One of the things I like best about Rutherford's track record, frankly, is the situational awareness to just say, nah, we're not going to make a first round pick for like eight years. Who cares? Who cares? All picks must go. We're a win now team. Um. You know, at, at some point, at some point, even if you're set up long-term, if you can add a player, that helps you raise a banner like that banner flies forever you know i'm not i'm not i'm not necessarily a long term only thinking guy right like i know i often advocate for this organization to think long term but that's cuz i don't think this organization's raising a banner right like i don't even know if they're raising a banner at any point with elias peterson as their best player like that's how far back the vancouver canucks are but when you get to a point where you've got a real shot When you're an elite team like Colorado, the value of going for it, every marginal increase in quality on your roster is worth so much. Um, Would they consider it? Could they consider it, particularly given that Newhook himself is going to be a pricey second contract guy? Maybe. Maybe. It feels like it's on the high end. Like, if you get Newhook back in in a trade for Horvat without an extension negotiated, I mean, I think that's a home run return. to be be totally honest with you, I think Newhook's a really high pedigree young player. Canucks were very high on him in his draft year. Um, Most of the the people who were are gone, but that doesn't mean that the organization's entire view will will have altered. Uh, I think that to me is on the high end of what you can expect uh, as like a primary piece coming back for Horvat. But even with all of that said, I'd still think that the Canucks would, you know, be pushing to get an additional something back. Although the Avs don't have much to trade. They have their first in 2023. They have their first in 2024. They don't have a second or a third round pick either of those years. This is a team that's already pretty close to all in. Uh, And if they do get more all in, you know, uh, they're certainly a a team you could understand why why they'd be interested in Horvat. Especially because Horvat's like lefty, second line guy, scores a ton of goals, plays bumper on the power play. Like hard to find a more natural Nazem Kadri replacement, to be totally honest with you.
2: All right, you're saying looking into, you know, you don't love looking into the long term, uh, but we're going to do it. Well, sorry, I do. I I always
0: look into the long term for a team that needs to be focused on it. I'm just saying if I'm the Avs, whatever, I don't care.
2: Okay, yeah. Bring me wins now. Okay. all right, let's let's change it over to the Canucks looking into the kay. future for the Canucks. Now, Ryan from Chilliwack saying, you know, the Canucks, it, say the Canucks actually surprise everyone and get Horvat under contract, can you explain the repercussions over the next few years?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean I, I definitely can. The fact is is that it's looking increasingly likely, although not guaranteed that the cup the, the cap is going to be flat for one more year. So if you extend Bohorvat Horvat and let's say the number seven and a half. Okay, let's just, I'm throwing it out there. It's its sort of completely out of thin air. Don't read anything into me pulling that number. It's just like what I think is, you know, uh, low end market value. I like to be conservative so that fans can't be like, he won't cost that much when I'm sort of doing cap budgeting exercises, right? So if you do that, you're looking at a team that's going to have 76, 76 to 77 million committed at the outset of next offseason right in in a world where the cap is at 83.5 million so you're basically locking yourself into having very very little in the way of cap flexibility now maybe that number goes up a little bit right at least you've got Holpe and Vertanen's cap hits expiring their buyout cap it's expiring um Furlan's off the books Pullman we don't know that's sort of the big one right because that could give you an additional two and a half million in wiggle room, albeit LTI space wiggle room not cap space wiggle room. Um, but yeah I mean you're making you're you're creating an environment where you've got a really hard set of decisions um, you know Travis Dermott becomes pretty much a, a for sure do not qualify. I think you'd really have to step up your efforts to trade uh, or or in some ways find cap relief for the likes of Tanner Pearson. Uh, Tyler Myers, players with one year remaining on their deals. Um, you know, Ethan Baer and Niels Hoaglander, you're probably looking at going shorter as opposed to maybe buying out some of their prime years. And certainly Andre Kuzmenko becomes difficult to sign unless you can clear out additional cap space. For me, the biggest issue is, can you have 77 million committed to, you know, the following players? Elias Pettersson, Brock Besser, JT Miller, Connor Garland, Ilya Mikheyev, Curtis Lazar, uh, Dakota Joshua, Neil Zaman, Quinn Hughes, Ekman-Larson, Myers, Stillman, uh, Martin, Pearson, Demko. That's the group. Can you have seventy-seven million committed to that group, and only Tyler Myers is de- is a right-handed defenseman, and you only- and now you only have like four, four or five million to sort of lock him up? I mean, doesn't that sound tough? Like, doesn't that sound like a really difficult? spot to be in I mean you can play around with it you can assign some more guys down like maybe you can stretch that number to seven maybe you can you know you can probably find a way to get Kuzmenko done but what it does is create an enormous amount of pressure on this organization to send out contracts to like finally do the sorts of deals that weren't on offer last summer and which will be very difficult to do again this summer in a flat cap environment to create the wiggle room necessary to improve the supporting cast around the players like Miller, Horvat, Pettersson, um, you know, who, who can eat, like who can really sort of drive the offense for this team. But as we've seen the last three years, aren't going to manage to win games unless you significantly upgrade this blue line. Um, you know, for me anyway, big picture hockey strategy stuff, like I think about this a lot. I think a lot about luck in hockey, but also in life, right? Like one thing I often thought about when I was coming up and building my own career was like opportunities often came out of nowhere that sort of um, helped me or, or enhanced sort of my situation. My station allowed me to move on to different opportunities. And over time I sort of developed this theory that like I was lucky, but also I worked really hard and really consciously at expanding my network at expanding my like social surface area so that, so that I was more likely to, to take advantage of breaks. And I think about this a lot in hockey. Like, what are the teams that are most likely to get lucky? Well, they're the teams that control play the best, right? They're the te- if you spend as much time as possible directing pucks on your opposition net, you're more likely to get the deflection or the or the ridiculous bounce that gives you the lead, that scores the next goal. You create an environment where you're more likely to outscore your opponent. You're, you create an environment where you're more likely to get that lucky break in your career. Like, you, you luck happens – for sure, in life and in hockey, but also luck can be not manufactured, not the way, like, you make your own luck, not that hockey bromide stuff, but you can create an environment where you're slightly more likely to get the break that maybe someone else doesn't. And in hockey management, right, you can get lucky, right? You can score uh, uh, on a Tage Thompson, (laughs) like an absolute unicorn star out of nowhere. But for the most part, if you're going to be lucky, if you're going to be the team that gets Devon Taves and he then levels up and becomes one of the best defensemen in hockey, like if you're going to be that team, you need to give yourself the best chance to be it. And how do you do that? Cap space, assets. Cap space and assets. If this team extends Horvat, you know, in the wake of having done Miller and with the Pedersen extension looming, they are once again missing an opportunity to add assets, which this organization currently doesn't have enough of, and tying up more cap space, which this orga- organization has been, you know, contending with rather inefficiently for most of the last five years. Um, I just don't see how, I, like, I don't see how it's practical to extend Horvat as good as he is, and as important as he is to this franchise, and as much as I like him personally. I don't see how it makes a lick of hockey sense, to be totally honest with you. Like, lost in this kerfuffle, lost in what we're talking about in terms of the news around Horvat this week is, you know, if you're someone like me who's trying to read the tea leaves and look at the big picture and, and look for signs of hope, signs that this organization is contending really credibly with with just how deep a hole they're in, how much work it's going to take to get out of it, how hooped they are, both from like a cap prospect depth asset capital standpoint how far away they are from contending the fact that they even made a really significant long-term offer to Horvat in the first place like that's not good news that's not good news if you're someone who wants to see this organization grapple with the mess that's been left over you know the last 12 years of just hopeless embarrassing leadership from this organization
2: Okay, so let's dive into... <laughs> okay, then. so uh, changing tracks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're changing <laughs> tracks here, all right? Okay, so um, a lot of people have been texting in about, um, you know, you're talking about Horvat and, and essentially, you know, him needing to go because change needs to happen, but if they don't seriously start a rebuild this season or off season, few people have texted in asking about what the timeline will look like for competitiveness, whether they do... Choose to rebuild or not choose to rebuild? Will it go from four to six years to five to seven? Or does it get significantly longer?
0: Well, I want to tell you something. Here's a little secret I'm going to let you in on. The longest path to this Canucks team contending again involves them not rebuilding now. You know what I'm saying? Like, the longest path is to keep banging your head against the wall, right? Like, that's what we're doing here, right? This has been... Five, five, ten years of this team never really being disciplined about rebuilding. Instead, taking every shortcut, building flawed teams that don't accomplish anything, and then saying, well, you know, you can't wait five, six years, and then five, six years pass and you still you're still bad. Well, that's that's what we're at risk of of watching happen again. And in fact, not just at risk, it's gonna be hard to avoid that eventuality as it stands right now because of the age of Vancouver's best players and because of how long they're signed for, right? I mean, you're locked in right now, right now to a situation where in 2025-26, you're going to have, you know, a 32-year-old JT Miller and a 34-year-old Oliver ekman Larson taking up $15.26 million of your of your cap. Right, If you if you do like a Horvat deal at the hypothetical 7-5 number that I just suggested, then that number becomes 20, what, 22 million, 20, 20, almost 23 million, and in that 2025-26 20, season, you know, you're looking at 30-year-old Bo Horvat, 32-year-old Miller, 34-year-old Oliver Ekman Larson, like, you're not getting more from those players in that season than you are from them right now, and... If what you're getting from them right now doesn't make you a playoff team, like it's only getting tougher, it's only getting uglier in the years to come. The longest path, like if this organization doesn't dramatically change course, this decade could be lost and not could be lost, will be like there's a real chance that's already baked in. I, I, I don't understand why, you know, this team wins a few games in the second half of November and, and it's like everyone's, you know, talking about how many points they're back of the flames as opposed to talking about, you know, just how far away this team is from contending and how frankly, you know, thin this organization is on, on sort of things you can point to that will help them avoid this, you know, apocalyptic scenario I'm outlining for you. Like, uh, you know, it, it's coming, like it's coming inevitably without a significant change in direction, without a willingness to lose some trades, without a willingness to move on from players. And, you know, for all the talk that this market can't tolerate a rebuild that I've pushed back on, over the last two weeks, you know, we've seen, like, real arguments taking place about whether or not this team can afford to move on from Luke Shen and Bo Horvat. And it's like, you know, up the ante. (laughs) Up the ante. Like, what could this look like? It could look like this team, you know, needing to move Demko, needing to move Pedersen. Right. Being willing to swallow far worse than than losing Luke Shen. Like that's that's a minor sort of um, a factor here relative to the big picture of, of the sort of bull moves that I, I think this organization should make. And, and what's sort of sad about it is like I don't think in a hard cap league that a rebuild needs to take five years. Like I think that's ridiculous. I think you should be able to turn around a team and at least be, like, hopeful and fun and contending for the playoffs around, like, a really high-end young core again. Like, I think you should be able to do it in two or three years. Like, really, I think it should be two or three years. I don't think it's seven. I don't think it's five. But you have to be super disciplined about it. You have to be super disciplined about it. And for me, like, I mean, what's the case against doing it now? The Canucks are behind the Buffalo Sabres by point percentage. They're 24th in the NHL. Like, I know you can look at the standings page and be like, four points behind Calgary, or whatever, ignoring that Calgary is a far better team. But, like, they're 24th in the NHL. There's no cap space. Not no cap space, but there's not sufficient cap space to upgrade their blue line. There's no prospects coming. There's no asset capital. Like, I know I'm repeating myself. I'm getting hoarse developing these themes, but this is what this organization's contending about. And I think the timeline question really misses the point. Like, Rebuilding's not the long road. The long road is to continue doing what this organization has done for the last 10 years that hasn't worked ever and pretend that, hey, maybe this time might be different. You know, I I mean, the rebuild's the fast way. That's the real shortcut. You know, I mean, there are no shortcuts, but doing it right is going to be an awful lot faster, an awful lot more fun than whatever this is. Then whatever this is that we're constantly talking about and that's you know often making me yell on our airwaves, Lena. Lena, I think I think we got to close <laughs> the mailbag. I, I know we didn't get to as many as we wanted. My I, I need to keep my responses shorter, maybe. Maybe, maybe that's a.
2: But if you want to close the mailbag, let me just say this: somebody kay. did text in saying the Canucks could beat out the Flames because anything can happen.
0: Yeah. Uh, hey, let's see. Let's see. Maybe that person is right. Maybe. <laughs> nope. Uh-uh. But that's okay. I. You know what? You know what? If you believe anything can happen, ask that texter to, to send me a screenshot of the bet that they've placed on the Canucks to make the playoffs and the Calgary Flames to miss it. You know, if, you, if you're if you that confident, if you really want anything can happen, to say anything can happen, if you really want to stand behind it, visit our friends at Play now.
2: <laughs> and, and
0: and prove and prove to me that you actually think that because and
2: then otherwise one, it's one just last empty one words. I got one last one drance a yep. couple people have texted in about the lotto line um any thoughts about reuniting that line and possibly throwing horvat with kuzmenko and mikaev
0: i'm here for it i'm here for it because i think jt miller despite the criticism that he gets for his defensive play is actually this team's best Maybe second best if Ilya Mikheyev's like fully healthy and skating the way he can. Maybe second best, but no worse than that. Defensive winger, right? He might not be a great defensive center, but move him to the wing and he's an impactful matchup player. I mean, what does the lotto line achieve? You put your best winger with your best forward or your best center. That's it. Like that, that's it. I mean, that sounds good. That sounds fun to me. So yeah, I have a lot of time for seeing what the lotto line reunited could accomplish, I think it'd be pretty cool. All right, there you go. Thanks, Lena. Thanks for helping with the mailbag. You're the best. And thank you to all of our listeners for sending in some questions and helping us out. Um, Really, it was avalanche talk for most of that mailbag (laughs) segment. Lots of questions about Colorado. But so it goes. Hey, look, we're going to be back for segment three. We'll be joined by Harmon Dial, my colleague at The Athletic. Thank you for listening. You are, of course... Listening to Thomas Drance, it's Canucks Talk. It's Sportsnet 650. Oh, it's that stressful lead in music, which means we are back for the final segment of Canucks Talk. It's 1.30. I'm coming to you live from the Tech studio. We're going to get Harmon Dial on the line shortly. Of course, my colleague from the athletic codename, Boy Genius. And we'll talk Canucks hockey. But yeah, thank you again. To everybody for joining us, and to everybody for sending in questions, and to producer Lena for combing through the best responses. Good stuff from everybody, and I'm sorry that every answer took 10 minutes. That's just my style. That's just my style. You should see me trying to take a survey. My goodness. All right. We've got Harmon on the line. I'm going to welcome him into the chat. My friend, how are you?
3: I'm doing really well. How are you?
0: I'm doing all right. I'm better now that you're on the line with me. So, Canucks, Flames, how do you handicap this one tonight at the Saddledome?
3: Yeah, it's an interesting one. The Flames are obviously a tough team just in general. I think they're better than um, the standings, sort of where they're on the standings right now. But it's interesting where if you pit them against, say, an opponent like the Oilers, I actually like the matchup against Calgary a lot better than I do against Edmonton because... Mm. What Calgary sort of like it, it seems. What Calgary lacks is an elite power play, and an elite explosive sort of top end. Which, when you play like Edmonton in Calgary, I, I think between those teams, you could argue that Calgary is the better team. And yet, against the Canucks, I feel like when McDavid and drysettle are in town, and you have that unstoppable power play, it brings out the worst of the Canucks in terms of their inability to defend at 5-on-5 five five and, and handle the, that tough matchup um, and on the penalty kill, whereas when you go up against, against a team like the Flames, last I checked, their power play was 24th. They seem to be having a, a tougher time generating offense, which I think can create an environment where um, the Canucks can maybe hold their own a little bit better. Obviously, on the flip side, Calgary, when they're at their best, can be really tough to score on. They play with play with good structure, especially um, with the personnel that they have down the middle and, and on the blue line. But um, for, as, for as tough a team as Calgary can be overall, I actually don't hate the matchup because um, I don't think they necessarily have the elite talent um, to feast on the Canucks the same way a team like, say, Edmonton can.
0: Does it change the dynamic at all for you that Vancouver can't also in going into this lean on the idea that they for sure have the better goaltending?
3: Sorry, can you sort of rephrase that?
0: Does it does it change how you handicap the way that Vancouver and Calgary match up? That Cal, that going in tonight, you know, it's not like we're talking about the Canucks, you know, in, in a world with Thatcher Demko where we're saying, hey, they've, they probably have the better goaltender tonight.
3: Definitely, it, it absolutely makes it um, so it m- makes it tougher for from the Canucks' perspective. I, I do also think that it's going to be interesting to see what um, what exactly the the Flames getting at because their goaltending has been inconsistent, inconsistent, especially with mm-hmm. Markstrom kind of slumping. He was great against Montreal um, not too long ago in that uh, in that shootout loss. So from that perspective, it is it is going to be interesting. The one thing I will say with with what the Canucks have kind of gotten from uh, the goaltending position recently is that, yes, the goaltending hasn't been great. And, I I mean, you're not going to look at um, Spencer Martin and look at him as a sort of netminder that's going to win you a game on his own the way Thatcher Demko could could last season. But also, when you look at the last couple of games, whether it was Minnesota or, or even the San Jose game where he was criticized a lot, I actually thought that, he was totally fine. And in fact, in the Minnesota game, he was really good. And it was more a reflection of how much the Canucks were kind of struggling um, defensively and, and just the sheer volume of high danger chances that they were permitting. So, I mean, look, even for, even despite the fact that I don't think that um Calgary's the worst matchup for the Canucks. Still, when you look at these teams on paper, it's, it's still going to be an uphill climb for the Canucks because um it's going to be interesting to see whether their offense um can continue to generate especially um sort of at uh, at 5 on 5 obviously the team also kind of experimenting with some new um uh, line combinations because um if they if the Canucks do have an off night it you know they it could be really difficult for them to kind of generate a lot against a pretty well-structured Flames team.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm worried about tonight. I'm, I'm worried that the Canucks are going to struggle to score a lot more than we're used to them seeing, particularly given that they appear set to play Curtis Lazar on the right wing of their top line. Um, is that the most baffling decision we've seen from Boudreaux all season?
3: Oh, I'd have to really uh, think about think about all the decisions but i mean it is <laughs> like are there other contenders
0: like what's even close
3: it's it, it's fair i'd have to really sort of think about it um i mean playing mailer at center for that long was certainly a decision especially in a matchup role <laughs> um
0: but he had such a long body of work having excelled there last season i mean to me that was a harder one to see like lazar Cam Sharon's data has Lazar not having set up a single scoring chance this year and you know I mean what, what what's he going to bring that they need on that line against Calgary like it really I'm really baffled by it
3: yeah it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me especially because I think in general it feels like Nils Hoaglander is just the default in terms of oh oh the team's kind of losing and we need to mix something up it doesn't matter if he's sort of playing well, if he's playing just alright or, or where exactly these kind of games at is just like, all right, the defaults, we need to mix things up. Let's send Hoaglander to the press box and we'll throw someone else into uh into the top uh, into the top nine. And yeah, I mean even if like let's say there even was a scenario where you really wanted to try something totally different, um, I mean, wouldn't you rather give Joshua the spin there as opposed to Lazar? Not saying that I want to see Joshua there because I mean, I also don't really love that idea. I have time for that. Right. Yeah. I mean, sure. Uh, especially because he, he is sort of able to create a little bit more down low has been a sort of in and around the net and has a little bit of uh playmaking touch in small areas. But yeah, I mean, with Lazar, we haven't really seen much of anything offensively yet. Um, I mean, the one thing from Boudreaux's perspective is he probably looks at the one time that he put Lazar on Pedersen's wing and Lazar scored that tip goal against Washington. And, um, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that that one sort of game is enough to sort of be like, oh, like, let's, let's give that a whirl again in terms of Lazar in a top-nine offensive role next to one of the Canucks' best centers. But uh, I wonder if that's part of the calculus on uh, on Boudreaux's part. The Niels Hoaglander thing, is
0: there a better fit is there a guy you'd rather see? Is there a reason to try someone else with Miller or and Horvat, or have they found something there, even if they refuse to stick with it every time Hoaglander makes a mistake?
3: Right now, I think that's their best option because quite frankly, whether you look at Garland or Besser, neither one of them have really been able to stick and clearly, Miller and Horvat have played really well together. So when you're looking for that third piece. I think Hoaglander brings something with his speed and how quickly he's able to help that line transition the puck up the ice, especially because Horvat, I've said this many times before, but he doesn't really play like a traditional centerman in terms of his involvement on the breakout. He's the sort of player who I think is most dangerous in transition when he has a pair of wingers who can sort of help transition the puck up the ice. And Hoaglander, I think there's been an inconsistency in that regard, but when he's at his best, especially when we saw it in, in Hoaglander's rookie season, when he was stapled next to Horvat, I
1: thought,
3: I, I thought he's been one of Vancouver's better wingers at being able to sort of make a slick play along the wall to help, um, help that line generate off the rush. And the way that he's able to kind of hunt, hunt the puck down in the offensive zone. He just plays. Mm. He, he, he's one of the connections faster players in terms of the way that he plays and right. i sort of like that fit with miller and horvat and i don't know if if um you know you've, if there's necessarily a better option there um ba- based on what we've seen so far
0: dries garland besser are at some point tonight going to play their 45th minute together at 5 on 5 uh they've yet to score a goal um do you see signs of life there though or i mean wh- what do you what do you want to see from that line? Like, what's their what what should their identity be? Like, I even struggle to understand
3: like w- what they are. They're a preseason line, right? Like when it's right. two or three games left before the season opener, and the veterans are starting to come back into the lineup, but you don't have all of them, so you're just kind of putting together a random line. I mean, seriously, like that could drive Garland Besser legitimately sounds like a preseason line, and um. The interesting thing is when Kuzmenko was on that third line, he clearly, I think was able to elevate it because he was, you know, the clear play driver and he was sort of able to, um, able to create offense on his own. When that line has been constructed as it is with Garland drives and Besser, especially with Garland, I think struggling a little bit more than usual to sort of create offense on his own. I just, don't know if that line really has a play driver and I think in terms of what you're hoping for that line to do what you really have to hope is that Garland can drive the bus for that line as a playmaker because you're certainly not going to be expecting Drys or Besser to say um be have, have you know have the puck on their stick a ton in the offensive zone um and the concern I also have is when you look at someone like a, a Drys on that line he doesn't finish well right even when that line, even when that trio was able to sort of generate chances on occasion, um, they weren't necessarily able to bury down on those chances. And I think for that line to really have any hope of working, you're going to need Garland to be the most dynamic version of himself playmaking wise, because that's the only way you'll even unlock Besser's scoring ability because Besser, when he's at his best, he's someone who wins battles along the wall can help retrieve pucks, and then his job is just to find the soft spot in the slot, find the open ice, and he needs someone to get in the puck there to be able to use his offensive talent, and that's where I think if you're Bruce Boudreaux and you're looking at that line combination, you're looking at Garland and saying, hopefully he's the key to unlocking Besser on that line. Right, so
0: the Connor Garland thing is getting... Really interesting to me, just because we're talking about a player who we know is like a five-on-five rate scoring ace, and yet he's scoring like a fourth liner at the moment, and most of it seems to be percentage-driven. I mean, this is a guy carrying the lowest on-ice shooting percentage among all Canucks forwards, uh, sitting at a number around five. Uh, This is a guy who's, um, you know... (laughs) Carrying a four point four percent five on five shooting clip, he he usually shoots closer to ten um, percent uh, in that in that game state. Is there is there more going on than just the bounces, or is Connor Garland
3: unlucky? I think unlucky is definitely a big part of it, but I will also say that I don't think that we've seen him. I mean, maybe you disagree, but last year it felt like. Um, Garland was able to do his spins and turns at will in the offensive zone off the cycle. And it's felt like he's been a little bit off in that regard where I've been noticing there are some more more often than last year you'll have more situations where he'll be trying to hang on to the puck in the offensive zone and he'll maybe be off the mark with um, a load of high play or he won't be able to you know, execute the look that he's um, sort of trying to find. Um, whereas I think last season I looked at him and I went, it's not even close. He's by far their best five-on-five five playmaker below the hash marks, and I think you still see flashes of it. Um, and I think, especially when it comes to his finishing in the slot, like I still think he's been getting um, a fair amount of looks there. And I think with better bounces, he he should have um, you know a, two, three more goals to his name. But I still think there there is more for him to show when it comes to his cycle game in the offensive zone. I just think it's been a little bit off in terms of, you know, how many plays where I've gone, wow, look how look at how elusive he's been. Um, I just don't think I've seen that as often as last season. And, um, of course, that's been compounded by um, some bounces not going his way either.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a, a both thing because his shot rate's down, his assist rate's down. I mean, it is some of it a product of line mates? Like, do they need to give him more opportunity to get him going? Like what, what's the plan in your view? Like I, I'm asking you like shape your, shape your rebuild Connor Garland's confidence and value plan. What does it entail?
3: It's a really tough question because I don't know who he really has chemistry with, to be totally honest. I think right. um, I liked the idea of tr- initially trying to play him with Horvat Miller Um and sort of deploy him in a frontline role and and sort of get, you know, that line sort of maybe, maybe going offensively, but um, yeah, they didn't score like an odd fit. Yeah. It just didn't really work. And then when you look at Pedersen like that, like Pedersen's line has been going, I don't know if you necessarily want to um, want to tinker with it, especially if you're potentially rotating someone like Besserin, for that sort of um, role that role next to Patterson down the line to sort of rebuild his value. Um, I mean, I guess you, you maybe give, you can consider giving that a a look down the line, but the way I kind of look at Garland is he just kind of got to be an independent contractor in terms of how he creates offense. Um, Because I don't see that, you know, I, I don't see, there isn't a plan in my mind of if you play him with that guy, he's going to get going. Right, um and so I really look at Garland, and I think um, I, I did I, I did kind of like the idea of um, when he like when he and Kuzmenko were on the same line like I, I do wonder if giving him like a second sort of crafty, offensive um, elusive player helps, um, because Kuzmenko's also kind of similar in terms of how he u- uses his edge work, and I think away from Pedersen, we saw that Kuzmenko can create offense on his own, right so maybe there's a world where you consider reuniting Besser up with Petterson and hope that Besser's value can be rebuilt there um knowing that Kuzmenko can create offense on his own line and that maybe he can click with Garland that's the only thing that i can sort of think of um considering um i guess you know some of the similarities in terms of how they hang on to the puck between um Kuzmenko and Garland but honestly i think um, this is more got to be about Garland finding his game because I don't see some like deployment or usage related trick um, to fix things right now. Is
0: there a single player on this team right now who would have more value as a result of the contract they're signed to? Or, so like, like, is there anyone whose value is enhanced by their contract status on this team? Or is everyone on this team's value, in fact, limited by that factor? Like, can you think of an exception? Is there a single guy who would be like, okay, that guy has more value because of the deal?
3: I mean, uh, Kuzmenko, but that doesn't really count because it was basically an ELC, one-year ELC. Um,
0: yeah, excluding rookie deals, right? I mean, right. Kuzmenko, Hoaglander, Colson exclude all of them
3: well I think Horvat is a pending UFA sure um at five at like just over five is obviously an attractive deal um but it would have been more attractive
0: last year like it would have been more attractive in yeah, a two-year
3: deal definitely 100 percent I mean you know, obviously a steal for what he is right now but he's due for a uh, big payday and um, yeah, no one
0: wants a nine million dollar QO on uh, Like, even on an elite player. I mean, look, Petterson's value is Petterson's value, but, like, he'd have more value if he'd signed five times nine, right, and had three years yeah. remaining at nine than he does right now. Like, it feels like one of this organization's issues, too, is, like, other teams feel, seem to be able to create value out of nothing by just managing their books right. Like, wh- where's that value coming for this team? How do you get that started, in your view?
3: Yeah, I think... That's, that that's really been the crux of the issue for the Canucks is I think a lot of people in the past have kind of looked at players on the roster and gone well he's not a bad player and or um, you know uh, whether you know whether the debate's been with Myers or with OEL last year um, or or Sutter in years past where um, I think you'd have one side of the argument going you know, look at his contract, like, you know, he doesn't have much value and then other people would argue, but you know, he's only a little bit overpaid, but the problem is those, um, you know, those margin, I don't even want to say marginal because it's more than that, but that, that, um, that inefficient value adds up when you have a ton of those contracts across the board. And I think that's the biggest issue that management has obviously run into is this past off season, they weren't able to, like for for as much as we can criticize um you know for example the decision to resign miller and the lack of uh commitment to the long term future they were also given a ton of contracts where they were practically impossible to move right whether you look at the dickinson one that they had to give up a second to, to get rid of which by the way considering the state of the team they shouldn't have, have done that anyway but still underscores how how you know the how bad of a contract that was whether it's dickinson or whether Pearson was such a layup um, when, you know, he should have been sold as a deadline chip instead of re-signed to that deal. Uh, Myers, OEL, um, it just seems, and and they've obviously kind of, you know, compounded the issue where um, even with Besser, it's been unfortunate that he hasn't been able to get on track because I think part of the logic was, you know, they were in such a difficult spot because of the QO, um, signed by the the high QO because of the last administration's bridge deal for Besser that they're kind of in a scenario this past summer where they're like he doesn't really have any you know trade value because of that QO let's try and sign him to a to a bridge to another sort of kick the can down the road deal hope that he plays well um, this season bounces back and then maybe we can flip him and the bouncing back part hasn't happened yet so. I think a big part of it, honestly, is, is you've kind of got to be able to ride. You've unfortunately got to ride out the pain. And um, there isn't an easy out for a lot of these deals. I mean, I guess in the case of a Myers, once the um, once signing bonus is um, is paid in the offseason um, and he's only got the one year left um, with low base salary, like that's at, at hopefully a chip that you can move. But there isn't a whole lot that I can look at that's easily fixable. And I think that's part of the reason why a lot of us look at this big picture view of the roster and go with the core every year becoming more expensive. And a lot of these inefficient deals still on the books, you've got to think about, um, you know, kind of blowing up the, the blowing up the core potentially and um, really hitting the reset button in, in a meaningful way and not just um, trading one contract away or, or like trading one contract away, trading a Besser or trading a Garland, whatever they want to do. I don't think that's necessarily going to solve the big picture view mm. um, because it's just it just feels like there's a fundamental flaw in the cap structure um, in large part because of um, the last administration and then compounded with, for example, a J.T. Miller extension.
0: Yeah. Uh, by the way, Parm from Surrey texts in and suggests Demco and Hughes. As answers okay, Demko's to this question, really good one. Demko's, Demko's the best answer. Hughes is really good, too. Uh, I like both of those replies from Parm. Parm correcting harm. Let's end it there. Hey, thanks for joining us today, my friend. Thanks, man. I'd be well. So that'll do it for the Drance solo edition of Canucks Talk. We'll be back tomorrow. Jamie's status TBD. He's injured on roster at the moment. Uh, Or IR or LTI. I don't know. I'll have to confirm it with the Canucks. Figure out exactly where Jamie is living on the cap sheet. But hopefully he's back. And if not, two more hours of me. Two more hours of me talking hockey. Uh, Just to put a bow on this show. Because we've talked a lot uh, about a lot of different stuff. We set up the Calgary Flames game. We talked to Pat Steinberg about the Calgary Flames. About how the Canucks are viewed in Alberta. We answered questions from the mailbag. Which included me drilling down on the quickest route back to contention, rejecting the binary of like the long view rebuild versus the short view compete. Now there is no compete. Now this team hasn't competed now. I mean, one of the last seven years, and they've always been pushing their chips in like it's time to try something different. That's actually the quickest route. That's what I was trying to explain. And then we talked to Harmon about a myriad of issues. How does Garland fit? How do you resuscitate his value? What's next for this team if they're going to take any type of step? And, and I think it all sort of fits into this bow um, or fits into this idea that, you know, it's becoming untenable, right? It's becoming untenable in this market for fans to really invest in a core group that performs the same way year after year. Uh, that disappoints in the same way year after year, that doesn't compete hard enough consistently enough and cannot buttress themselves, support themselves when the luck goes against them to to find, you know, eke out that 500 stretch that saves your season. Instead, it's a seven-game losing streak. Instead, it's a five-game losing streak. Instead, it's something that eliminates them. Um, The team still has a chance to change that story, right? Five big games, all against Pacific Division opponents before Christmas, If the club wants to change the conversation around them, they can. They'll do it with their play, or we'll keep talking about it. Anyway, that's it. Final thoughts from Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650.